Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Andrew Conti, who is Director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. Today we will discuss Media Desert. Andrew joined Point Park University in 2005 as a part-time professor and founding director of the Point Park News Service. As an investigative reporter at the Pittsburgh Tribune Review since 2001, he has covered a wide range of topics that include rising health care costs, offshore banking, and the legalization of casino gambling across Pennsylvania. Andrew has received numerous national and local awards for his reporting, including a Scripps Howard Foundation Award for Business Reporting, the Carnegie Science Award, and first place honors from the Inland Press Association, the Association of Healthcare Journalists, the Pennsylvania Associated Press Managing Editors, and the Associated Press Society of Ohio. His latest book, The Color of Sundays, The Secret Strategy That Built the Steelers' Dynasty, won a Ben Franklin Silver Award from the Independent Book Publishers Association. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me on. What do we mean when we say media deserts? What exactly is that? So these are places where local media no longer exists. And so these might be communities where there used to be a newspaper or a local radio station and the newspaper either went out of business or maybe there was a regional newspaper and they've cut back their circulation. And so you've got this community that no longer has any sort of an outlet for sharing local information. That's been a big problem in western Pennsylvania where we're based. We're in Pittsburgh. Uh, we're seeing it here where there's a community that's just just outside the city of Pittsburgh, it's 20,000 people, and it has no local news at all. And so we've been talking with the residents there about, well, how do you find that information? And they're really uh, perplexed by the fact that it's hard to get information. You mentioned newspapers, but, of course, the only source of news isn't newspapers. Does that term apply to broadcast media as well? Well, for sure. It definitely applies to broadcast media. We talk about uh, local radio stations. A lot of communities will have a, a local radio station that will serve the community. Less so for TV. Uh, these are typically places where they're too small for television, and so they kind of fall under the radar, and they don't they don't get a lot of attention. Uh, for example, the, the community I'm talking about, it's uh, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, and the firefighter, the, the fire chief there, I met with him recently, and I asked him what it was like to live in a media desert where there's no local news. And he said, well, last winter, he went out and he raised enough money to give every child in the local elementary school a winter coat. This is a, an underserved community. People there, a lot of kids couldn't afford coats. So he gave them all coats. And when he tried to promote that, there was no local news outlet to cover it because the newspaper has closed at the end of 2015. And when he tried to reach out to the broadcast TV stations from Pittsburgh, which is about 20 minutes away, they weren't interested in it. It was too far for them to come and tell that story. And so it's the kind of thing where a good deed like that goes completely unrecognized because there's no one to tell the story any longer. What about online media? So we see online media coming in and trying to fill the gaps often in these kinds of communities. In this situation, there's a, a group that's called Tube City Almanac. Uh, McKeesport used to make steel products. They made steel tubes, and so the community is known as, steel, as Tube City. And so the Tube City Almanac does some limited reporting. Uh, and then there's a Facebook group, 
there that's common in a lot of these communities the residents might get together and put together a, a Facebook page where they share information about the community one of the challenges we've run into though is that for example with the the online messaging we're working with a group of young people and they're out doing interviews in in this particular community and they were interviewing senior citizens there and they said what do you miss about McKeesport and right away the senior said we miss the McKeesport daily news and then the young people said, well, what do you miss about the Daily News? And they said, we miss the obituaries. We don't, we don't realize that by the time we find out that our friends have died, they're already dead and buried in the ground, and we've missed their funerals. And we said, well, what about the online options? You know, you could go to Facebook or somewhere. And these people were saying they didn't have access to online. They don't have uh, computers. We asked if they had a computer in their, the building where they live. Uh, it's a, a senior high-rise. They said, no, the, the building doesn't have a, a computer. They didn't have computers. They didn't have smartphones, and so they were feeling left behind. Surprising how many people are, don't have access because of financial reasons, but also there's a little bit of a wave of part of the population that is going backwards in terms of technology and pulling away from social media as studies indicate that the electronic devices are causing problems, that overactivity on social media is causing psychological problems. Are you finding some of that as well? I think it's, it's true that some people are definitely pulling back from social media. You know, if, you, if you've got Facebook on your phone or Twitter, it's easy to get addicted to every time an alert comes through. You grab your phone, you look at it, and you get... The, the, a lot of those social media sites are, are have the same trigger on the brain that uh, other addictive behaviors have, and so it's easy to get drawn into that. And, and as a re result, a lot of people are saying, "No, I'm, I'm just going to delete Facebook from my phone, or I'm going to delete delete Facebook from my life." And so, to your point, yeah, in that case, then you're not even connected through Facebook or social media to your community. So maybe there's, you know, there used to be a newspaper or a radio station that's gone. Now some of your neighbors are starting to communicate on Facebook, but if you're not tuned into Facebook, then you're not seeing that either. How common is this issue of media deserts? Have you looked at the country as a whole? Yes. So there's been some interesting work that's been done. Uh, Michelle Ferrier at uh, Ohio University, she's done some work doing mapping around the entire United States, and that's what really got my attention at the beginning was that these media deserts are cropping up everywhere. Uh, they're... There are really two kinds. There's the kind where there there used to be uh, local media and it's no longer there. The other example is somewhere where uh, there's a, a local media outlet, uh, but they don't cover that particular community. So it might be uh, an urban neighborhood. I was just in Philadelphia last week, and uh, they were talking about the Germantown community in Philadelphia. It's a, a community where, yes, it's technically not part of a traditional media desert because there are TV stations there, there's the Daily News, there's the Inquirer, there are lots of media outlets. But in terms of that community of Germantown, nobody's telling the stories of that particular community. And what's different about that from the past is that in the past, the large newspapers would have had somebody covering every community. They would have gone to every council meeting, they would have gone to every borough meeting, every township meeting. That's not happening as much now because as media outlets have pulled back, maybe they still say they cover those areas, but they don't cover them with the same intensity. Uh, so that's it's a phenomenon that's happening everywhere, and it's definitely uh, interesting to see how 
Uh, what they've done at Ohio University is created a heat map showing where media outlets have disappeared, and you just see it happening everywhere. Wow. Do you have a website address where our listeners, <coughs> where our listeners can see that? Uh, well, certainly they can start out with uh, centerformediainnovation.com is our website, and uh, my contact information is on there, and then that's a place that will connect through to um, other, you know, we can link from there to uh, the other research. The person who's doing the work at Ohio University, her name is Michelle Ferrier, or Ferrier, uh, depending how you pronounce it, and uh, she's the one that's on the, the heat map working. How many places are we looking at when you say that this is nationwide? Do you have a handle or an idea of the number that we're talking about? Well, if you look at it in terms of uh, the, the website for the Media Deserts Project is mediadeserts.wordpress.com. Uh, so you can go on there and see the, the heat map. Again, it's mediadeserts.wordpress.com. Uh, when you talk about nationwide, the phenomenon that's happened, uh, go back and look at uh, the period of 2007 to 2009, that was the the Great Recession, right? Everybody across the country um, remembers that time when uh, there was, you know, a lot of cutbacks. And what happened with newspapers and media in general at that point was that uh, they suffered like everyone else. But then, in addition to that, the the cuts have continued coming, and so it's it's been pretty dramatic. I mean, if you look back at that, just that 2007 to 2009 period, we lost 100 newspapers across the country. Uh, revenues for media outlets dropped by uh, $37 billion, which was uh, a third. And 12,000 journalists in those, that two-year period, 12,000 journalists left or were forced out of their jobs. Uh, those are all uh, research uh, from the Pew Research Center. And then since then, you think, well, okay, what's happened since then? A lot of the country has recovered since then. What's happened in newspapers and and media news outlets is that they've continued to decline. So there's been a, a 10% decline in circulation since just since 2016. So that shows you how it's it's gone down. And if you look at the, the cumulative effect of all that, um, there are about half as many subscribers now as there were in 1973, which was the peak uh, of newspaper subscription. So it's been a pretty dramatic change. And uh, if you look at the, the decline in ad revenues, which is really what's happened with media is that as Fewer people have taken the newspaper. The newspapers then have had to, they've had declining ad revenue as well because they can't charge as much and because uh, advertisers have looked for other outlets like they're, they're going online themselves. So ad revenue for uh, news outlets has dropped to $18 billion in, uh, in 2018 versus uh, $49 billion in 2006. So it's pretty incredible. And if you, if you just round that up, it was $50 billion a little over a decade ago, down now to under $20 billion. A report I read recently that looked at diversity in media highlighted, and I think they were just looking at some of the aspects of coverage, the lack of diversity in the newsrooms at, I don't know how many, media outlets they looked at, but it was a national study, and many of the media outlets declined to respond to the questions at all, and those who did didn't actually answer the questions for the most part, and those who did answer the questions didn't have much diversity in their newsroom. Could that have something to do with these challenges that you've just outlined for us, 
that the media that is out there is no longer reflecting the interests of the populations that they serve? Is this playing a role? So it's an interesting question about media diversity. It's, it's always been a challenge, and it continues to be a challenge. But there are also some glimmers of hope around it. So what we're seeing from the traditional media, you're absolutely right. The uh, diversity rates are abysmal, uh, and and it's hard to, uh, to 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 say what's driving that necessarily. In a city like uh, Pittsburgh, a mid-sized city, the publisher of the Post-Gazette, which is the daily newspaper here in town, I was just on a panel with him about a month ago, and he was talking about this very issue, saying that it's hard for them to get good diversity candidates because uh, they can go on to bigger markets. And they're, they're, because there are fewer of them, they can go on to bigger markets. And if they come to Pittsburgh, they're only here as a stepping stone to somewhere else. Uh, so that makes it difficult. But on the plus side, what we're seeing is a great democratization of media. And so you're seeing people who were shut out of the media in the past now being able to have their voices heard. And we've seen that play out directly in, in several ways. I mean, one, you've got people who are able to uh, create their own websites. There's a, a group here in town called Very Smart Brothers. It's a, a website that's that talks about African-American issues. It's run by uh, uh, a local African-American journalist who is based in Pittsburgh but can write about national topics, and he can have his voice heard because he was able to create a website, and, and he's had really good reception. Uh, another thing that we've seen happen is that people who never had their voices heard before are able to get out there now. Uh, we had an experience here where at our Center for Media Innovation at Point Park in Pittsburgh, we, we partnered with a group that was doing communications for people with disabilities, uh, mental disabilities. And so uh, there were two people who, who did podcasts and video webcasts that normally wouldn't have them. So one uh, was a guy who has cerebral palsy. He speaks with a Dynavox machine. He created a podcast, and he did his interviews through the Dynavox, and uh, it was well-received. He's a, a student, and so when the Press Club uh, of Western Pennsylvania gave out awards this spring for students, he was in one of the categories. I don't know if he had competition or not. He was the only finalist. He was the winner. Uh, but in another case, we had a woman who is 46 years old. She's got Down syndrome, and she wanted to create her own podcast, and so she created one around what it's like to live with Down syndrome, and she interviewed people like her trainer. She interviewed uh, a, a local athlete who plays for the New York Mets, and uh, you know she got him to come into the studio and talk to her about baseball and how that applies for, for people with disabilities, how they can adapt the game to themselves. And so when the press club went to give out their awards, uh, this woman was listed as one of the finalists up against the public radio station, uh, was a finalist, and there was a, a podcast created by uh, two reporters at the Post-Gazette, the, the daily newspaper. As we went into the evening, we were telling this woman, to, look, don't get your hopes up, don't don't think you're going to win. It was great just to be a finalist, and wouldn't you know it, when they announced the winner, she actually was a winner. And so what's amazing to that is that those are diverse voices that never would have been heard before. Uh, because of the way the technology has evolved, they're able to access the technology. And not only are they accessing it, but they're doing it in a high-quality way that allows them to, to compete and produce content that's every bit as good as something that's being created by a professional media outlet. I found the 
name of the study, uh, I believe it was from this year. It is a study released by Harvard University's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And they looked at 15 major news outlets. Uh, so it, it, it's the same issue that you just shared with us, but those are traditional media outlets. And what you're describing is how people of diverse backgrounds are finding alternate ways to communicate and to be proactive because there is no space for them in traditional media outlets. And so when we're discussing – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I wouldn't – I wouldn't say that it's not that there's not necessarily space there, but what you're, what's happening is a lot of these people are saying they would rather go and create their own thing rather than go through the traditional media. Uh, you know, given opportunities to go work at a daily newspaper, a lot of people are saying, no, I'd rather go and create my own site and reach people in my own way and go directly to my audience rather than going through the traditional mechanisms of you know, a, a, a white city editor who may or may not understand the the messaging that I want to do. Isn't that part of the issue, though, that they don't feel welcome in the traditional media outlets? I mean, the outlets they're talking about in this study, for example, are USA Today, the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, PBS NewsHour, the Los Angeles Times. These are the mainstream outlets that we as a nation look toward. And if these diverse people who now make up the growing, the largest growing segment of our population aren't getting diversity there, then where would they get diversity? Yeah, no, it's definitely a problem. It's It's been something that uh, people have been working at a long time, and we've actually, we've obviously got a long way to go to, to resolve the issue. Is anyone in the media side of things, are any of these media outlets looking at the issue of media deserts? And I'm sure, of course, they're looking at the decline in revenue because that's hurting their bottom line and it's resulting in a loss of staff. But is anyone looking at it from the media desert perspective that we're discussing? So most of the traditional media are more focused on keeping themselves afloat, right? And so they've pulled back from these areas because they can't afford to have reporters out there. Most often it's because they've offered uh, a, a buyout or they've had layoffs at the, their organization, and so they have fewer reporters to go out and cover these areas. And so they're making financial decisions. And unfortunately, that's, there's concern about it and there's awareness, but I don't think they feel they have the ability to go out and do anything about it. Um, and so it's it's those moments when and – and they will say that, yes, we're out covering these communities still, but they're not doing it at the same depth that they were before. And it, it's the moments when something happens in those communities that goes unreported or there's corruption taking place and no one's writing about it or, or broadcasting about it. Uh, it's the times when it's Election Day and you go to look at media, local media to see who you're going to vote for and you realize nobody has written about the candidates in that community at all. There are those moments where people are waking up to the fact that, oh, if I'm not paying for the news, if revenues aren't coming into the, the news outlets like they were before, there aren't going to be people out there doing the same level of questioning and accountability reporting that existed in the past. 
Let's go back to the definition for a little bit. It's the absence of media coverage, but I think I also heard you say that it's media coverage that is incomplete. And that makes me think of, for example, areas that are geographically large where the coverage is spotty. Or, for example, I remember last year, I'm in South Florida, around the time that Hurricane Irma was hitting, and it was nearly impossible to get information on really basic needs, such as the availability of gasoline, which gas stations had fuel and which ones didn't, what was the state of the shelters, where could people go, information that is really vital in a crisis. Is that a part of the media desert? How, where, does, where do we draw the line? That's definitely part of the, the media desert. It's, uh, it, it exists in those acute situations like you're describing. I've done some hurricane reporting myself, and in the, the moments and days after a hurricane, it's especially frustrating to try to get information and to not have it there. And it's only exacerbated now when you have fewer people actually out doing the reporting. Uh, but it also exists as a chronic condition in a lot of uh, communities where uh, they're often uh, – poor urban communities where the media only come in to report on uh, shootings, fires, horrific car accidents, the, the bad things that happen in the community. They don't show up for the day-to-day the -day life issues that are happening in the community or the discussions that are happening about schools and government and taxes and representation and, and accountability and, and who's doing the day-to-day work and decision-making in those communities. That's where the, the media deserts apply in those cases. Is there a set of criteria that you can look at, sort of check off, this, it has this, it has this, it has this, therefore it's a media desert? How do you reach the conclusion that an area is a media desert? So it's such a new, new field that the research hasn't really caught up to that. Uh, one of the the early definitions, the the one that they used at Ohio University was to look at counties that no longer have a single daily newspaper, a printed daily newspaper. But you can imagine how that's an incomplete definition because, like we've just been talking about, there might be a, a newspaper in the county, but it doesn't cover the entire county. It doesn't cover certain communities. Or, uh, you know, there may be, uh, in, you know, conversely, there may be a twice-weekly newspaper in a community that's doing a pretty good job of covering that community, and, and so it's not a fully developed news desert. It actually has some, some voice there. It's just not on a daily basis. So people are, are struggling with actually def defining that right now, um, but it, the interesting thing is that there are a few people out there that are actually starting to pay attention to the problem. It's, it's really something that's just started emerging over the last decade, and it's, it's something that is coming to uh, a head right now and is going to continue to grow. Uh, over the, the next, you know, the foreseeable future. I've noticed that where it used to be pretty straightforward to reach media outlets, there would be a readily available list of contacts, whether it was the assignment editor or the breaking news desk or the beat editor, the columnist for a particular media outlet. It was fairly easy to get access to that information if you were in need if you were in public relations or somehow needed to make a contact. And lately it seems that all that data has evaporated and it has become increasingly difficult to reach 
anyone directly. Have you seen that across the country, and do you think that's related to this phenomenon, the, the media desert? Well, it's definitely a problem, and it's not just the, the average consumer on the street that's having trouble. It's, it's even people that are in positions of power. And so uh, what's happened, you know, with as media outlets have tried to do to do the same work that they were doing before but with fewer people, those people are super stressed out. And so um, in some cases they're, you know, the, the contacts were, people for, were for people who are no longer at those media outlets. Uh, in other cases, the, the people who are there are, are more isolated. Uh, the, that's one of the, the big problems that I'm studying. I'm a, I'm a Ph.D. student uh, looking at uh, community engagement and how communications is a tool for community engagement. And I think that's one of the essential problems of media outlets today is that reporters have increasingly lost touch with the communities they cover. Even when there are reporters there, what we see oftentimes is that the reporters aren't allowed to go out into the community. They're told by their, their bosses, you need to stay at your desk, you need to be churning copy, you need to be just writing as much copy as you can, even if it's not original, go out and you know aggregate it, which we call you know it's what we call taking from another site and uh, you know synopsizing the the news and writing a synopsis of the news and linking to somebody else's story. Media outlets that are driven by news clicks would rather have that because they know that's going to to drive more more eyeballs to their website, and it, but it means fewer and less time in the the streets for those reporters who are there that are left behind. Um, yeah. How does that relate to the loss of trust that we are hearing about these days that people, especially students, young students, can't tell the difference between legitimate news outlets, legitimate news sources, and bogus ones, and also the fact that many people for various reasons, including political ones, are losing faith in the media outlets themselves. They don't trust the information, perhaps sometimes because the outlets are politicized, because the pundits have become popular. What can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so those, you covered a lot of ground there, so there's a lot to unpack. I would start out by saying that while we think it's just young people that need to be educated on real news and fake news, it's, it's pretty much everybody at this point. Uh, it's hard even for the experts to sometimes be able to tell what's what's a real news story versus something that's been manufactured to look like a news story. Uh, that's something we saw obviously play out during the 2016 presidential election. Uh, people are alert to it now going into the midterm elections this year, uh, but it continues to be a problem where there's false information. There are people out there who are malevolently creating false information, trying to steer uh, opinion and eyeballs in a certain direction. The other thing you mentioned was the lack of faith in news outlets. And the frustrating thing that we've seen happen is that with the advent of social media that you were talking about before, as people are on social media, they are more likely to look only at the content that agrees with, that they agree with politically. And so they end up seeing, going back to the same sources, that reinforce their worldview rather than being forced to see a variety of sources that might challenge their worldview. Uh, and, and so that's that's one of the problems. We've seen uh, social media continue to, to push people in that direction. But people themselves, consumers, need to be – they need to work harder at this, right? So people would rather uh, read something that, a, a, that confirms their worldview that, that might not be true rather than going to a 
traditional media outlet that's going to tell the story the way it actually is, but that contradicts their worldview. Uh, we see that on both the left and the right. Um, people are reluctant to trust media that doesn't automatically confirm what they already believe. One of the arguments that I have heard is that media, whichever moniker or label they want to put on it, are over, what would be the term, they're covering a particular group of the population more than others, that they're bleeding hearts. Is there any evidence to support that? Are there, for example, publicly funded media outlets that are covering certain market segments more than others? I think journalists in general go into the business because they want to make a difference. These are generally people who have agreed to take less money. You know, most of them, if you're, if you're really talented, you could go into public relations and make a, a lot more money than you, you would at a newspaper or a, a, even a TV news outlet. People think TV reporters make a ton of money because they're on TV, but the reality is they don't. Uh, and that most don't. I mean, obviously, there are people at the top who, you know, make a lot of money, but for the vast majority of, of reporters, they're, they're taking less money. And so these are people who want to make a difference. They want to hold power accountable. They want to speak up for people without a voice. And sometimes that's looked at as being uh, liberal. Uh, but I think if you look at it across the board, uh, reporters generally set aside their personal beliefs. They, they believe that it's not about their personal opinion. It's about telling the story and, and relying on facts. And they're reporting the facts. What's unfortunate is sometimes those facts are not received well by the public if they, they don't agree with what people want to believe. What about this concept that I've heard people say that media or news should be available freely, that they don't want to pay for access to information, that this is a right that they have, and so they should be able to go to a media outlet website and have access to the news to the media outlet in general free of charge. Do you see evidence that this really, that there is a, a part of the population that feels this way and that behaves this way? Sure, definitely. People people feel that way. They would like to have news for free. It was one of the, the changes that the Internet brought about. So many media outlets rushed to get their content online without thinking about the fact that they were giving away what they had been charging for in the past. But on the, the consumer side of it, I think people are hopefully starting to wake up to the idea that you get what you pay for. As with anything else in life, if you're not paying for it, is it really going to be quality? Is it going to be something that you really want? And so what happens if people don't pay for news, then the situations we've been talking about are what happens, right? Re reporters lose their jobs. There are fewer people asking difficult questions. R reporters don't work for free. Nobody works for free. Right, So if, if you want somebody who's going to go out and, and ask the difficult questions on your behalf and represent you at council meetings and all of the machinations of local government and, and corporate excess that uh, journalists have covered in the past, you got to pay for it. 
Is there any kind of number that we can apply to that? How many people are we talking about? What percentage of the population follows this idea that the news should be free and is refusing to pay for it, which seems to be linked to this media desert issue that we're facing, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if people aren't going to pay for local news, then how's the local news going to support? I mean, it, there's the advertising, so hopefully they bring in those dollars. But in general, you need to have that. That interaction needs to be there. Uh, I don't have hard numbers on who's paying and who's not paying, but I will say what happened after the uh, 2016 election. We saw a lot more people engaging in the media. People were concerned about uh, manipulation of information and news and lack of accountability. And so you saw a big influx of subscribers into a lot of the national publications, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker. All these places have really benefited from that. They've gotten an NPR, donations are up, all these things are up. Uh, but what's happened is the, the local news is, is continues to be left behind. And it's interesting there that people uh, haven't rallied around local news the way that you think they might. And I think that's because they're still just waking up to the idea of what's being lost. There's been an issue in the news lately of a large owner nationwide of a number of television stations which has been forcing their staff, their on-camera staff, to make statements and to dress in particular ways and do things in particular ways. Do you think that is playing a role in people turning away from local media because they're losing trust? So you're referring to the Sinclair Broadcast Group. They have stations all across the country, and they um, sometimes will send out editorials and, and force reporters to read those editorials across the country. Uh, yeah, if, it, if it comes off as phony, if it comes off as forced, absolutely that's going to break down trust. Um, but I will say, on the other hand, that media has always worked this way, that whoever owns the, the media outlet, whether it's a TV station or a newspaper or a radio station, whoever owns it gets to control what content goes into it. Um, we've had that playing out here in Pittsburgh where the, the local daily newspaper was always a very liberal-leaning newspaper, uh, the, the Post-Gazette, and there was a, a conservative, another conservative daily newspaper in town called the Tribune Review, uh, the Tribune Review stopped publishing a printed newspaper every day in the city of Pittsburgh. It's online only in the city now, and it, it prints in the suburbs. But in that news vacuum, then the Post-Gazette, the owner there started changing uh, the philosophy of the newspaper. And so they started doing more conservative editorials, more uh, not even conservative, but populist. They're, they're big fans of President Trump. And they the newspaper had a very popular cartoonist uh, who – was doing he'd been at the newspaper for 25 years and he'd been doing uh, cartoons for something like 35 years the newspaper let him go this spring because he was doing what they believed were too many cartoons that made fun of president trump and students in my classes i teach journalism at point park students would say well, how is this possible and i would encourage them to take it through the the logical steps that if you work for a newspaper and the publisher comes in and says, you must run this editorial, your options as a, an employee then are, are limited. You either run the editorial or you start looking for another job. And so 
what you mentioned with Sinclair is the same sort of situation where they said they're sending out these editorials. They want their people to read the editorials, and a lot of people along the line are trying to make a decision. Do I go ahead and read what they're asking me to read, telling me to read, or do I quit my job and look for something else? Well, and how can the audience trust what is coming out of the station, what a reporter is saying, when they don't know if it's actually the result of his or her journalistic efforts instead of some mandate that came from the headquarter offices out of state? Yeah, I think what you have to do as a consumer is start to separate fact from opinion, uh, you know, identify what are the facts in these stories, and uh, you know what's what's just somebody's idea of you know they're they're just feeding you thoughts or ideas that aren't based on any kind of facts. That there's a distinction there, and that that's being lost in this whole process as well. People are are losing touch with objective reporting, uh, fact-based reporting. Um, you have the president, of course, attacking this idea on a regular basis. Every time he sees a a fact that he doesn't like, he declares that it's fake news. Uh, we saw it when he was in England last week, recently, when he was talking about, uh, the. you know, he'd gone to the local newspaper and criticized the Prime Minister Theresa May, and then when he was called on it, he said, well, that never happened. That, that's fake news. But, of course, the newspaper had a recording of the President saying exactly what he had said in, criti- you know, criticizing uh, the Prime Minister. So, all of that is leading toward er- eroding people's trust in fact and, and fact-based journalism. There's a newspaper article that came out last week. I actually can't find the date of the article on the article page, which is a a bit uh, surprising. It's titled, In About 20 Years, Half the Population Will Live in Eight States. Mm -hmm. How, if at all, do you think that that relates to this issue of media desert that we're talking about, the shifting demographics of the country, if in fact 50% of our population is going to be in only eight states? Well, I mean, we already see it in terms of the media consolidation that's happening, uh, that there's so much more focus on the coastal areas. There's focus on the big cities. There's focus on New York, Washington, Los Angeles. Uh, then there are the second-tier cities, and then there's a lot of the country that just isn't even on anybody's radar, right? I remember when I, I went to graduate school at Columbia University in, in New York City, and we had a professor who was talking about, in that case it was about uh, television and uh, sitcoms, and he said, you know, imagine trying to create a sitcom that, uh, that appeals to everyone in all of the markets across the United States, and I said that that didn't ring true for me. What they were trying to do was create a sitcom that was popular in New York City and Los Angeles. And if you had enough people in those cities that were behind a show, it didn't really matter if somebody in in Pittsburgh or St. Louis or Kansas City or Milwaukee, any of these cities across the country really uh, was paying attention to it. It's the same sort of thing that's going to continue to get exacerbating now. Uh, we see it happening with the the news media already that a lot of the discussion is driven by people who are based in Washington and New York. Uh, They don't get out of there a lot. They're trying to report on uh, this populist movement that's come across the country without really fully understanding it. Uh, If they come out to a place like western Pennsylvania where uh, the city is a a blue dot in Pittsburgh surrounded by lots of, of red counties and red communities, 
they'll send a reporter to come out and spend a few days to parachute in, do some reporting, and then leave. Uh, there's not really a full understanding of what it's what it's like to live in these places, what it's like to be there on a daily basis, and why people are frustrated with government the way they are. So what are these issues, the changing geography that we were just talking about, the way that public officials in the current administration in particular are disparaging media and reporters, all of these issues that we're discussing, the profitability or lack thereof of the media outlets, what does this mean for the long-term impact of these media deserts nationwide? That's a great question. What we're, what we're trying to do, so the, the Center for Media Innovation, the, the space that I run, is a laboratory for the future of storytelling. And so what we're trying to do is go into some of these communities and see where we, whether we can work with local residents to start telling their own stories. And so in this community of McKeesport that I mentioned in, earlier in the interview, uh, it's a city of 20,000 people. It no longer has a, a daily newspaper. It doesn't have a radio station. It has a small uh, local website. We've gone in there, and we're working with young people in the community. We have a, a, we're working with a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. She's uh, training the students how to take good images and make good pictures. Uh, we're, we have a, a journalism instructor there who's working with the young people on how to ask good questions, how to, to speak up for themselves and tell stories about the community. When we first went down there, we started with some brainstorming with these young people to see what their their level of interest was in the news and at first they were they were reluctant to talk uh, this was a, a group of uh, about 15 students they're all african-american and when we asked them about their community and their concerns they had a hard time talking about it but we tried an exercise uh, called rose thorn bud we asked all for the rose we asked all of the the students to Tell us something that they like about their community. Write it on a post-it, and we put, up on, put it up on the, the board in the front of the room. And they wrote words like school and church and home, places where they feel safe, things that they loved about their community. When we asked them about the things that they didn't like about their community, the thorns, they immediately jumped on it, and they wrote uh, litter, abandoned buildings, gangs, gun violence. They started talking about how one of their classmates had been killed in the streets after school last year. And then we asked them what they wanted to change, the, the buds in their community. And one woman in particular spoke up and said, I, I don't see any African-American leaders in my community. Uh, I see they're all whites around the school board. They're all, there's a white mayor. They're all white city council. There's no African-Americans. Who are the leaders there? And so we've worked with those students to try to get them to create journalistic content around their concerns. They understood right away that if nobody else was going to be raising questions about the gang violence in the community, that it, if there wasn't a media outlet there, nobody was going to be doing it. And so it was up to them to start doing it. And so we've been educating them on it. Uh, after we started meeting with them, there was a, a special election for state representative. Uh, an African-American was elected from the community. And so we asked him if he would come in and meet with the students. And we went and met with the students in advance, helped them articulate their questions, and they sat there for an hour, and they fired their questions at the state representative. What was he going to do about the gun violence? What was he going to do about the the lack of safety in their schools? What was he going to do about the litter and the abandoned buildings? And so that's my great hope for these media deserts is that as people start to realize that the journalists are no longer there, that there's nobody there asking the questions, that citizens themselves have to take up that responsibility. And maybe they 
maybe they post, post the answers and share them on Facebook. Maybe they do it in a, a newsletter. Maybe they come up with some other way, you know, a, an email listserv. But it's incumbent on all of us now in these places where there's no media, it's incumbent on us to be better citizens, to ask those questions, to be more engaged, where in the past we relied on journalists and, and others to do the work for us. What's the Media Oasis Project? So that's the that's the project I've been talking about in McKee Sports. So we we've been spending the last year, um, actually the last it's been it's been less than that about nine months, uh, working with the young people there, trying to get them to uh, tell their own stories. And so they've been going out and taking these photographs, taking images, making videos, telling stories. Uh, we we've, we've got a pilot program going this summer, and it's going to culminate at the end of the summer in. Uh, in an, an event where they'll be able to show off all their work and talk about the, the stories they've created. We're hoping that that is a, a pilot that leads to something bigger than that we can get citizens in general more engaged where if they see the young people doing it, maybe the older residents of the community, they start doing it as well. And you create a, a space, a physical space, and also an atmosphere of um, collaboration and creativity where people are able to come in and start telling communities about their own, start telling stories about their own community. So who's funding the project, um, Andrew? Is this a university funded project? How does that come about? So I'm a, a PhD student at Point Park University where I also run the center. We started out, I started out just doing it as a personal interest. I thought it would be a an interesting idea. I was concerned about what was happening, and uh, a colleague in my cohort, my PhD cohort, uh, he works in the community of McKee Sport, and so the two of us got together and said, Let, let's try this. Uh, we initially got a grant from the university itself uh, for just over $800 to get the program started. Uh, we brought the students into the center. We have a uh, video production studio, we have an audio studio, we have uh, photography. We brought the students in and we talked to them about the things that you and I were talking about earlier. Fake, what is fake news? Why does journalism matter? How do you do a good interview? Uh, we put the, the kids on camera, we got them telling their stories, we got them comfortable thinking about journalism. And then we went back to the community and we did some work there. Based off of that initial $800 grant, then we went to the I was doing a presentation, and somebody from the Pittsburgh Foundation, which is a it's a foundation of foundations. Basically, uh, a lot of people when they're um, they're going to you know when they're thinking about what's going to happen when they die, they leave a lot of money to someplace like the Pittsburgh Foundation. Say, we want to I want my money to go toward you know whatever specific topic. The Pittsburgh Foundation saw the presentation and they came to us and said, we, we love what you're doing there. We want to be part of it. And so they gave us $7,000 for a summer pilot program. We hired a uh, full-time journalism instructor, uh, a part-time journalism instructor, rather, and uh, that we hired this Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer, Martha Ryle. Uh, and so they're down there working with the students. Every Monday, the students come in for a class where they learn about journalistic practices. And then... Uh, later in the week, they go out to a local playground and they do an event where they make pictures and talk with residents and and tell stories of the community. Do you think that eventually this is going to reach across the different segments of the population? Right now you're talking about a young market, if I understood correctly, a young group. Right, right now it's mostly young African Americans who are involved in the project. 
Um, I'd like the next step, what we're hoping to do is get grant funding to keep this going throughout the year. Um, the next step would be to uh, have young people in general, uh, young people at the, the local middle schools and high schools, at, you know, regardless of, of race. And then from there, I'd like to do some projects with uh, senior citizens in the community. Uh, there may be an opportunity to, to get the young people working with the seniors. I think that would be an interesting collaboration. And then just beyond that, to get citizens themselves engaged in telling these stories. I, I think part of it is giving, empowering people. Again, uh, you know, the the way media has worked for most of the 20th century was it was very one-directional. That there were reporters who would go out and collect the information, and they would tell people what was going to be the story of the day. You think back to, to Walter Cronkite and the impact he had. But he was, you know, hit Walter Cronkite at CBS, and his producers were choosing what topics to cover. And it was very, you know, top-down. They were directing what was going to be the conversation in the country. And the same sort of thing happened at, at newspapers and, and, and radio stations and TV stations across the country. There were a few people who controlled what was discussed in those places. What we've seen now, there's an empowerment where because everyone who has a smartphone can be a photographer and a broadcaster and a publisher, that there's now an empowerment. People are able to take back the news and they're able to say, if the local media is not telling the story about my community, I can tell the story about my community and I can connect with the people in my community in a way that I couldn't do before. Do you think that this is going to fill that gap that we've been talking about across the country, these media deserts? Do you think that the concept behind the Media Oasis Project is going to fill in that vacuum? I don't think there's going to be any one solution. Because of the way things have played out, there are going to be lots of little solutions. Uh, we're Another thing we're working on at the center is an ecosystem project. And you're starting to hear this in other cities as well where – uh, people are starting to look at the multitude of outlets that are out telling the stories now. So it's not where in the past you might have had one or two daily newspapers setting the agenda. Now there are lots of little media outlets, and they create an ecosystem of coverage where you know each one may be covering just a specific particular niche topic or a specific geographic area. But when you start to look at them in totality, they start to create a blanket of coverage that goes way beyond. And the cool thing about that is you get a, what we were talking about before, you get a real diversity of voices, you get a diversity of perspectives that didn't exist before. So, of course, the critics listening to this model are going to say, yes, but citizen reporters and their images and videos are not trustworthy because they're biased, because they don't follow journalistic principles, because the system gets hacked. What would you say to that? There, there was a real backlash against citizen journalism uh, about 10 to 15 years ago, uh, particularly from professional journalists who were saying, we, we can't trust these people because they don't have the training, they don't have the ethics, the, the expertise that we do. Uh, and, and there's some truth to that, right, that the untrained citizen doesn't have that same ability to tell a story in the way that a professional journalist does. And there's also truth to the fact that oftentimes these people who are willing to show up at public meetings every month or every two weeks or every week have some sort of an axe to grind. They're there for a reason. 
And, yeah, they may be telling stories about it, but they're bringing their perspective to it. Uh, that's all true, and it's a challenge, and it's one of the things that we're trying to work on. That's why we, we believe that in this particular Media Oasis project, we want to start out by training people on what it means to do good journalism, to be a good journalist, to be fair, to be accurate, to get all sides of the story. All that said, I would say that it's still better to have somebody who's there grinding an axe and sharing the information rather than not having anybody at all. Uh, there's a, a pilot program that's taking place in Chicago uh, where they're encouraging average citizens to go out and cover uh, communities. And one of the first things that they discovered, the big, one of the first big scoops they had was that a lot of the meetings weren't even taking place anymore. The public officials figured, well, if nobody was going to come to the meeting, they didn't need to have the meetings, and so they stopped having them. Even if you've got somebody who's there with an axe to grind, with a perspective that is not totally objective, who's there and they don't have the skills to take a professional quality photograph, it's so better to have somebody there than nobody at all. What suggestions would you share with our listeners, Andrew, who want to better understand this issue and find ways of addressing it, perhaps if there's a media desert in their community, perhaps if they want to become involved as citizen journalists, or perhaps if they're interested in this concept of a media oasis project? So I would suggest they first start out by coming to our, our website, centerformediainnovation.com. Uh, we're based in Pittsburgh, but we are building out our branches across the country, and so we're interested in collaborating with people everywhere on this topic of media deserts. Uh, my contact information is there. I'd love to hear from people who are concerned about the issue. Uh, if people want to take it up on their own, uh, I would suggest that they, one, uh, if there's a local newspaper or local public radio station in your town, subscribe. Uh, even if you don't want to take the printed newspaper, a lot of people don't like the, the print piling up in their house, go ahead and subscribe anyway. Get a subscription, support good news, support the people who are out there telling stories in your community. Realize that they're working for you. They're working on behalf of the public. Uh, so that's important. And then if you see a place where there is no local news, I would take it up on, on start to take it up themselves. If they're in a place where nobody else is telling the, the stories in their community or or they don't like the way the stories are being told, there's an opportunity for people to create their own website, create your own blog site, create your own Facebook page, start going to council meetings, start asking questions, ask for the budget reports. How is your local government spending money? What kinds of decisions are they making? And share that information with others in your community. You'll find out that there are many other people in the community who are just as frustrated with the lack of information and who are just as eager for the information that you are. And you can start to build community on your own. How can they get started? Is there a resource or resources that you would recommend for people who want to follow that path? Yeah, I would suggest uh, starting out by looking at some of the um, the sites that are already out there, people who are doing it. There are lots of uh, good face Facebook pages that are are available where people are doing community reporting. Uh, it's a good place for uh, getting some ideas for what's what's been happening. Um, and then beyond that, it would be you know looking to journalism schools and uh, getting a feel for you know what kinds of training is out there. 
one of the the example I mentioned before was the the city new city news bureau of Chicago. Um, that's one that uh, could be worth checking out. That uh, or it, it's, it's just called city bureau citybureau.org. Uh, they're doing community reporting. Uh, that's a good place to start. Just kind of see what's out there and, and realize that it takes somebody from the community to step up and find the information and start sharing it. So outside of what are described as the top two publishers online, are there individuals who are doing this who you would recommend as examples who are not on Facebook, who are not on Google, just individuals who have set up an online presence that you think present an example that prospective citizen journalists might follow? Uh, yeah, there's one one in particular that uh, we are just starting to work with here in Pittsburgh. It's a it's a community that's uh, again just outside of the city. It's called McKee's Rocks. Uh, they the newspaper there uh, went out of business uh, about a, a year ago, a little over a year ago, and some of the residents got together and said, "We're going to keep we're going to do something on our own. We're going to come up with our own newspaper." And so it's called Gazette 2.0. And it's they have uh, they were able to to come together as a community. Uh, they have enough advertisers that they're able to support a full-time editor slash reporter. Uh, she she goes out and, and does all the stories, and then they have a bunch of freelancers beyond that. And these people are are doing it. They have resurrected their community newspaper in a place where um, that was going to be a, a, a media desert, and instead the residents there are. Um, they're doing their own doing their own news, holding people accountable and telling stories in the the community. It's uh, uh, Gazette two point zero. Gazette two point zero dot com. Uh, no, I think it's the website is PittsburghWestSideNews dot com. But if you if you do a Google search for Gazette two point zero, that'll bring it up as well. Are they doing audio and video content as well, or just print stories? Right now, they're focused on print content, and they're. When I went out to meet with them, they were debating whether to put their content on the internet, and I was suggesting that they not rush to do that. Um, there's a, another. Uh, so this is the West Side. There's a, another group here in Pittsburgh called East End Print. And they've made a conscious decision to not put their content on the Internet for free. Uh, they do a printed newspaper. They sell ads in the community, and they deliver throughout the community. And they realize if they give away the content for free online, then people won't pick up the newspaper, and advertisers won't advertise. So um, it's interesting that a lot of these places are going with a print-first model for local news, realizing that's still the best way to sell ads and get you know, the, the economics to work for it. So are we going full circle? <laughs> we might be, yeah, especially in these small communities, yeah, going back to the printed newspaper. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yes, thanks for having me on. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Andrew Conti, who is director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University, who discussed media deserts. 
Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.